Hello and welcome to Global Take, the BPIA podcast. I'm co-host Tyler Smith. And I'm Alexandria Hadara. Welcome to Global Takes, America's number one podcast discussing global issues from the Black perspective. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, retired ambassador and newly appointed Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer in the U.S. State Department. Chief Officer Abercrombie Winstanley has had an expansive career in the Foreign Service, spanning from her assignments in the Middle East monitoring democratic elections to her service as the longest serving U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Malta. In this episode, not only do we talk about her career journey through the Department of State, Congress, and the Department of Defense, but also what it means to be the token diversity pick in a field that leaves little room for minorities, and what true inclusion means in the governmental space. Without further ado, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Abercrombie Winstanley. Thank you so much for being with us here today. How are you doing? My pleasure. My pleasure. Good. So you've had such a plentiful career. I wanted to ask you, what would be like a standout experience for you during your career? Oh, my dear, 30 years, one? Right. (laughs) You can give a couple if you need to. (laughs) Um, One of them would be election observations in the Gaza Strip. Uh, In 1994, the Palestinians were having their first ever elections for the head of their government, head of their people. Um, Two candidates were on the ballot, uh, a woman, which was interesting, and Yasser Arafat. And I got to lead our embassy's effort with setting up election observers and talking to people going into the polls and coming out and just seeing democracy in action on the ground firsthand, first time for them. And it was electrifying. It was one of those things that remind you when our system is working well, just how special it is. Yeah, and I love that. And I know I was watching this kind of virtual event that you're doing at Carnegie Mellon, um, talking about your experience in Saudi Arabia and how first time being there, you were kind of going into a political meeting and the other diplomats actually made you be in that kind of like a female only room. Oh yeah, that, um, and in fact, I'm still friends. It was uh, a national day. You know, every country celebrates their founding like we do the 4th of July. So this was the national day for Pakistan. And it was in a hotel, public space, where at that time it was illegal for women and men not married, not from the same family, to be in a place together. So he had this this, uh, reception. And of course, as a U.S. diplomat, I was not bound by those rules and very much appreciated being able to break them down. Uh, But when I got there, one of his staff said, oh, madam, you cannot be in this room. You need to go in the other room with the ladies. And I was like, but I'm the U.S. Consul General. And he said, yes, yes, the ladies are over there. (laughs) And so I went in the room and chatted with the ladies for a few minutes and then said, ladies, I'm going back out to the room where the larger reception is. Uh, It is acceptable to do that. I prefer not to go alone. I think you all should come with me if you're comfortable. Let's go. And a number of the ladies, Saudi, foreign, all of them said, okay, let's go. And we all left the ladies room and integrated the larger room. And I have to say that my Pakistani colleague, um, who I took to task over sending me away 
from where the action was as a U.S. diplomat. He apologized profusely, um, said it wasn't his decision. I don't know if I believe him, but I got a very lovely lunch out of him <laughs> in apology. And we have right. remained friends since then. Oh, but sometimes you gotta you gotta push, push. you gotta push a little bit, yeah. Right, and I really love that story because it really just encapsulates you as the person in your career of not only bringing yourself up and claiming your seat, but also taking the people who also deserve that seat with you. Um, I wanted to ask you why do you think it's so important for women of color not only to take their seats um, that they're qualified for, but to bring other qualified women up with them? That is such a wonderful question. Um, I I'm old enough to remember a time, and, and ladies even before I, where the tokenism was very strong, where if you as a woman of whatever background, white, brown, or otherwise, or you as a minority male got into a position either of leadership or at the table somehow, there really was only space for you. And it, we were known as FNOs, first and onlys. But that also meant that there was only space for one, that you were always looking over your back at other brown people who might not join you, but replace you. So you couldn't get a lot of help from people like you, the people who would really benefit from having more like them to make their impact, to make change, they, they couldn't be as helpful as they should have been. And so it had to be a mindset for everybody, not only the gatekeepers, but those who were making it through the gates. So I have long believed that it can't be just one of us because one of us can't make change. You can't do it by yourself. So I'm a believer in a Posse, that's, that's my word. And whether it's women, whether it's minorities, whether it's just people who are thinking the right way, who understand the value of a wide variety of perspectives and visions and backgrounds to help bring solutions to the problems that we're facing. All of those people, I'm ready to make a posse with you and let's go make change. That's it. Can't do it by yourself. Right. And I love that because I know a lot of times when we talk about the State Department, a lot of people instantly think kind of a competitive kind of aspect to it. Like you said, this idea of there could only be one. And I love kind of shattering that idea and making it so that you can bring others with you. It's so important. Yes, yes, it is. And very effective. Right. I remember a meeting I was in um, when I was working at the White House and the discussion, which I can't talk about the content, but <laughs> right. the discussion went in a way that I did not believe served the interest of the U.S. government. And I wasn't even sure it was illegal, quite frankly, but, you know, people were very bent on pursuing this. And I remember uh, someone in the meeting saying, let's table it for this week. We'll make a decision, you know, we'll meet in a couple of days, whatever it was. But afterwards, going and talking with people in different sections and making common cause. And I basically asked the question, that sounded, you know, crazy to me. Was, was it me or was that crazy talk we were hearing in there? And the people that I got to were saying, no, it's not right. We don't think that's the way we should go either. So making that common call. So when the next time we got into the room, we amplified the positions of each other. So it wasn't just me by myself saying, I don't think that sounds right. Because, you know, bold and courageous as we have to be to make it in these spheres, it's hard to do that. It's hard to be the only one. And so I remember reading that in the Washington Post and the, the Obama 
uh, administration where the women were saying that they made an effort to amplify each other in meetings and make sure that we have allies as well. Next year's Congress will feature the most women of color ever. I'm Teresa Leche Fernandez. My name is Marilyn Strickland. My name is Nadia Velasquez. We can help each other and it makes for a better, better outcome, a better product in the end. I totally agree. And it's like this idea of what is diversity, right? Is diversity just having that person in the room and being kind of scared to talk because all these people have virtually the same opinion? Or is it like you said, amplifying each other's voices and bringing us all up together? And I think that's what's true diversity. I know we have this conversation, especially with the Biden administration of diversity and bringing it in the State Department and all our kind of different bureaucratic um, kind of areas, departments. And I wanted to ask you, like, do you think that we're kind of starting to do a better job with that um, within kind of these fields? Or do you think a lot of work still needs to be done? Well, I'm certain a lot of work still needs to be done. Right. But important steps have been made. And I think that this is a really exciting time, particularly if you are interested in foreign affairs, but in government in making a better country across the board. Number one, the people have been shocked primarily by the murder of George Floyd, but now we are not hiding from, we're not trying to pretend like this stuff doesn't happen. So we all see it, white, black, and around the world. As you saw, there were demonstrations around the world after that murder. So number one, the people understand. Number two, organizations are being called out, you know, whether starting with the Me Too movement. And now, you know, I think I just read two days ago that uh, the Golden Globes doesn't have one African-American reporter that's voting on what are the best movies. And so we didn't see Ma Rainey's Black Bottom get a nomination. We didn't see um, Black Judas get a nomination. And we didn't see a number of movies that many people love, but if they're the same elderly group of one type, maybe they don't have the breadth, depth, whatever, to appreciate movies outside of a narrow confine. So we see the film industry. We read about um, uh, uh, food magazines paying white influences more than they pay black influencers, for goodness sakes. Whether it is the law profession, diplomacy. So all these organizations are being called out and saying, we all saw those, those uh, statements in solidarity, saying they want to do better. So we've got people, we've got corporations, and we have government, we have leadership now, starting from the campaign, a president who said, I want my government to look like America. I want America truly represented. A cry for racial justice, some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. For racial justice for 400 years, that we have to hear it. And after his first executive order, which called for examining to support racial equity. So he's already begun. We see the 50% non-white cabinet, larger cabinet that he's put together. We see some of the appointments, but those are visible minorities. That's the first step, first step. Because it's not just about who you see, it's about what they do what can be done. And that work has to filter down, not only from the top, but all the way down. So that when we look at the numbers of people who are representing the United States, whether they're in the Foreign Service, overseas and in Washington, 
or the civil service, that it looked like America, not only at the bottom levels, the entry levels, the support staff levels, but all the way up. And that's going to take changing culture in a number of ways. Again, we need that posse to get that done. A hundred percent. And keyword, like you said, culture, right? This environment. I remember as a kind of a student, young professional going into State Department was something I never thought of because I never saw Black people doing that. I've never saw Black people focusing on things like China, which is what I'm interested in. But mm -hmm. when I see people do that, when I see people doing that stuff, it emboldens me to be able to speak up and do different things. And I think that's the power of diversity. That's the power of changing the culture. Absolutely. Right? So back to your career. I know we got on a sidetrack, but back to your oh. career in kind of Saudi um, in Saudi Arabia, right? One of the things you said in a conversation was this idea of being American and the privilege that kind of came with that, right? When you kind of go abroad, and I wanted to ask you about that kind of difference, right? Being in America as a black woman, maybe not feeling represented by what it means to be America, and then shifting to outside the country where now America has become a privilege for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think. Uh, many of us as Black Americans know that the first people, first thing people are seeing about us and judging us on is the color of our skin. And I remember having a fight with my dad when I was a teenager. And I was, I was really into, you know, women's rights, of course, um, and gender parity and all the things that come when you put women in important spaces. We bring... Um, balance, judgment, um, compassion, uh, I would say caution. Uh, so you know that uh, organizations, corporations that have more women on their boards perform better. It's, they're not taking as many risks with the money, with what's going on. And so they have a, a better performance overall. And my father's saying to me, darling, you put it in the order that you have to deal with it. And I was like, what does that mean? And he said, okay, when you are coming down the street, can people tell your sexuality? Not at all. Not until you decide you're going to tell them, if you want to tell them. If you're coming down the street from a distance, it, the first thing they're gonna know is your skin color. The next thing they're gonna know is what your gender is. And the third thing may be your sexuality, if you decide to tell them. And he said, I urge you to take it in the order in which you have to deal with it. And he said, the first thing you have to deal with is that skin color. So while in America, I know the first thing people see about me is my beautiful brown skin. Now, when I'm overseas, people don't necessarily know where I'm from. And so all of the weight that comes with being African-American in this country is immediately lifted because number one, I could be and have been mistaken for Egyptian, Brazilian, um, you know, African, Malian. There were, I was in Mali for work and saw women who looked like me, you know, in Africa, we come in all shades as well. So that's the first thing that that kind of baggage isn't there. And of course, I'm coming into rooms where the American diplomat is expected and I come with the full force of America, with all the, the good and the, and the bad, but I come with the full force of the United States behind me. So that, you know, when I was negotiating a consular treaty in Iraq, there weren't people who were saying, oh, we need to talk 
to a white American. I was the American. I was the one who could negotiate, who could make agreement or not make agreement. And so there was no question about, did I deserve to be in the room? And I know that in the past, there have been, you know, I've read, you know, in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, um, this Department of State making the argument, I think, I don't want to, I don't want to call the wrong Secretary of State, but I think it was Christian Herter, who is quoted as saying, you don't want to send Black Americans outside of Africa because other countries don't want to deal with them in any way. Other countries don't want them. Well, that was wrong on so many levels, but that was American baggage being imposed on others because others want to deal with America and they don't care who comes, you come as America. And so that that has been, yeah, it is a lightening of the spirit of the aspect because I'm not dealing with racism that is endemic in our country, yeah. Oh, that is so interesting. So you would say that you felt more discrimination in America than abroad. Representing absolutely. America. On the wow. on the basis of color. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. And That's it's so long, long, long time. I, I give a speech now and again, a talk about African-Americans on the world stage. And, you know, you have to you have to take sometimes the information in small bites because I get really angry and 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 it breaks your heart when you think about this needless damage that racism does to people's psyches and beings. But reading about uh, a U.S. diplomat who was posted to Russia at the time and having to come back to the States and, and commenting that in Russia, I meet with kings and queens, you know, and the top of society and am recognized and accepted because I am an American diplomat. And I come home and I can't get a hotel room unless I pretend to be from an African nation, unless I pretend not to be American. I cannot get a hotel room in a good hotel in New York City. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and that continues to a far lesser degree, but that's, that's reality. We deal with the racism here in our own country. We know that the suppression of minority rights is the first hallmark of the end of liberal democracy in communities. And so there is a public benefit, there's an international good to minority representation, but we cannot demand that or encourage that in other places when people can see we don't do it ourselves. Yeah, that's so true. And how do you, so how do you kind of cope with representing that? Like you said, the good and bad, like oh, that's what you're representing when you're going abroad, kind of all of America. Mm-hmm. And even on the foreign stage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, with China, when they're talking about the Uyghur issue, the first thing they said, well, you're treating your African-Americans in your country really bad. So why? So how do you deal with this idea of kind of recognizing that there has been a past and a current of treatment yeah. discrimination? And how yeah. are you kind of representing that abroad? Well, as any parent will tell you, just because you're not doing right doesn't mean that you can't tell other people what the right thing to do is, number one. Um, And certainly, I mean, I have not spent much time in Asia, just um, one full assignment and then some trips, but I hear that the Chinese actually have a serious problem with color. I have heard that from colleagues who have worked in the nation. So if I ever heard that from someone Chinese, I think I would raise an eyebrow, first of all. But Secondly, one of the things that I am proud of, as well as comfortable with in the United States, is that we know we mess up from time to time or on the regular, whether it is slavery and Jim Crow, 
whether it was uh, interning Japanese citizens, Japanese Americans, Japanese Americans, as if they were Japanese citizens in during the Second World War, whether it was the communist hunt for people in the 1950s, whether the Patriot Act and how we gave up so many of our hard fought rights in this nation because we were afraid of terrorism. And I point out that we are self-critical. We acknowledge when we have messed up and we are always striving to do better. And one of the things, you know, particularly serving in the Middle East right after 9-11, where the Patriot Act um, was allowing a wide number of abuses of American citizens as well as others. And the first public documented criticism of the Patriot Act, highly critical report, Patriot Act enforced by the Department of Justice, the criticism came from the Department of Justice. We were looking at ourselves. And that report talked about the pressure and undermining of basic civil liberties and rights in this country. And it was the led by the Inspector General's office in the Department of Justice, but that's where the criticism came. So I will say, yeah, we, we like every other nation, have skeletons, have mistakes, but we are always striving for that more perfect union. You know, we say those words, but somewhere we believe those words and we work hard to get a common understanding of what that means of using the words that are written in our constitution, in our declaration of independence. We have not lived it fully yet, but we are striving. We're striving to do so. And it must be amazing to just kind of be a part of that progression, like you said, of that kind of striving to get to a place where we're all together. And I love what you said about the kind of the tenet of our country is that we fix ourselves, right? Through democracy, we we change our opinions. And I think that's so important to recognize as you're representing abroad, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're all part of it. We're all right. part of it. And one major change that has occurred since, you know, I was your age and starting out in the field and now is that you speak up. I kept quiet. I kept thinking, oh, it'll get better and just do my job. You all speak up. I speak up now, but it took a while for me to get here, but we're here now. And it is my belief. You can't expect things to change. You can't expect people to address your problems if they don't know it's a problem, if they don't know this is unacceptable to you. And so everybody speak up when it's not right. You got to speak up. Definitely. So going back to your career, serving in Tel Aviv, working in the Gaza Strip, right? You received a Pearson Fellowship, which granted you the ability to work with Joe Biden in the Senate Foreign Relations yeah. Committee. So can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that experience? How do you feel now that he's the president? Well, I think it's good that he's the president. <laughs> right. I was coming out of Tel Aviv University and um, I didn't meet him until after I took the job. We did a telephone interview. And, you know, he was pretty stern, pretty clear about where he came down on international relations and, you know, asked if I could get behind that. And, you know, I said, sir, yes, sir. Um, and got to meet some amazing people on his staff and learn better about that third branch of the U.S. government. And I think it's really imperative that more 
State Department people take up that Pearson Fellow, get to Capitol Hill to better understand that relationship between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And it was just an amazing experience to see how laws are made, to see some of the priorities and things that members of Congress have to weigh as they are working through legislation. And, and they've got tough jobs. And I'll tell you, I could never do it. They have tough jobs and they have to do it in a way that more overtly has to take into account the views of the American people. I mean, we in the executive branch and looking outward, we're looking at U.S. foreign policy, U.S. interests with regard to the balance with our, our allies and friends and adversaries around the world. Congress looks at it that way as well, but they also know they got to go home and talk to Joe Blow about, you know, what jobs haven't, you know, what companies haven't opened up or what's going on in their home state. So they've got pressures that are more immediate, you know, from both sides. So it's, it's, it increased my respect for absolutely and appreciation for what they do. And, and it allows us to have a greater partnership. And, and Congress can be a wonderful partner for what we are trying to accomplish in our foreign policy and frankly, what we're trying to accomplish inside the Department of State. Again, we've got all these partners, I said corporations and individuals. We have Congress asking questions too, noting that the Department of State has been talking about diversity and inclusion for 50 years. And our stats show we've done a pretty lousy job. Well, you know what? The Department of State is full of brilliant people, brilliant people of all sorts. And it is my belief, I know, that when we decide, and I think the time is now, the Secretary has been very clear, we're going to address this now. To change the numbers, we have to change the culture, our norms, our behaviors, our biases. We can't build lasting diversity without first building an environment where all people are valued. We're not gonna admire the problem anymore. We're not gonna nibble around the edges anymore. We're not gonna pass the buck and it's not my responsibility or I have something more important to do. No, now we are going to focus and get this done now, now, now. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And I know through these very kind of, like you said, this vast array of experience, whether it be kind of local with the White House or um, the Foreign Relations Committee or even the State Department, right? You have kind of this diverse yeah. understanding. DOD. And DOD, <laughs> of this kind of diverse understanding of kind of how politics works, right? Um, and I wanted to ask you, how has engaging in these different spaces really equipped you and your understanding um, to leadership and approach to leadership? Well, it has been incredibly important. And again, something I urge, whatever your, your field is, it's important to get as wide experience as possible. As you're going up the ladder in the State Department, that interagency experience is heavily weighted because as you go up, it, you know, even though the Department of State is the leader for foreign policy, Department of State doesn't do it alone. You need the Department of Defense. You need justice and commerce and AID and Peace Corps. I mean, all of these organizations, Department of Homeland Security, you've got to be able to work with people, which means you need to understand what their priorities are, what their constraints are in order to make common cause, in order to get things done. And so all of those work experiences have been really important, have helped me better make 
uh, allies as I've been working to forward U.S. government, State Department policy, U.S. government policy. So I urge people to get those experiences. They will inform you. And particularly as you go very far up the ladder, when you're an ambassador, you are dealing with DOD on a daily basis almost. And depending on what country you're in, you could have a military presence that's larger than your diplomatic presence. So it's key that you've got connectivity, that you have relationships and that you have understanding to do your job the best possible way. That's great. And I wanted to ask you a follow-up question on that with that understanding that you have of policy. Do you have any policy recommendations for the Biden-Harris administration specifically <laughs> with the foreign policy in the Middle East? Mm. None that I'm sharing today, thank you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, right, um, right. So the challenges are fierce out there. Um, the president is already beginning to make clear what his priorities are. And the reality is we've got a lot to do at home. You know, oftentimes, you know, they say it's written that presidents turn to foreign policy when they have too many challenges at home. And they want, you know, something that's fun. You know, dealing with foreigners is fun. Uh, this president knows the, the challenges must be addressed at home. He's made it clear that's his intention. Um, and, you know, there, there are challenges around the world. And thank goodness we aren't the only ones who can look at them, who can resolve them, or who can make partnership on them. So, you know, he started his bilateral interactions with foreign leaders, phone calls. I think he did his meeting with Canada yesterday. I read he's going to be speaking to the Saudi king today. Um, and so it will all get done in its time. But he has his clear priorities that he's laid out. Obviously, COVID is number one, and that's a domestic and an international issue. So there's sometimes false lines drawn between the two. Many things, climate change, look at Texas. These are domestic and these are international issues. And so I might say that it appears he's focusing, and I think the American people appreciate that, focusing on writing the American ship but writing the American ship has a huge impact on the rest of the world. As you've seen the comments from world leaders who've said, you know, welcome back America. You know, America has been missed. That, that is true. We have an important role to play. And it is also important that among the people that the president has appointed are new faces, new ways of thinking as well. This is his administration and he's gonna do it his way. I like that. And I definitely agree with this idea of reshaping what it means to be America, right? Abroad and kind of in the United States, right? Um, recently, yeah. like in this last year, we saw kind of the Black Lives Matter protests and this kind of um, kind of appraisal and kind of charging about this idea of systematic racism, right? Um, and you signed, you even signed a position back then with 612 ambassadors um, in response to kind of former President Trump's use of military for the George Floyd protest, right? So <laughs> I know this is definitely something that's very contextual. How do you feel about kind of what has happened in the past, especially within this year? It's been a very interesting year in history, in United States history. And how do you think we can overcome that and change America's perspective? Yeah. Well, you say year, I say century. And I mean, who knows how long it's been really? Can I, you know, a day to day, I don't know what day it is. I don't know when I talked to somebody, saw someone last just this year, as you say. Um, my heart, like many people's hearts, have were broken last year. Um, you cannot watch 
that murder and that indifference from that policeman that he couldn't even be bothered to take his hands out of his pockets while he squeezed life from that man. He couldn't even be, you know, his sunglasses were perched on his head the way mine are if I'm sipping a nice glass of white wine, perched on his head, hands in his pockets. I mean, that was so searing and yet so necessary for America to see, to see that that man knew he was on camera and could not have cared less because he was so sure of his impunity to take that man's life. America needed to see that. And so heartbroken, but absolutely convinced and determined, determined and convinced that real change is now demanded, not requested, not sought, demanded by all of us, Black people, brown people, allies. We want a better country. And how we conduct ourselves here has a huge impact on how we're viewed overseas. So we can't, we can't futz around with this. Can't futz around with this. So I am hopeful. I'm absolutely hopeful. I've seen the steps that have been taken and I feel the determination of all of us that this even now is not enough, that we have got to keep on keeping on, as my mom used to say, keep on keeping on, you know, keep it moving and we're going to keep it moving. And so conversations like this to remind each other, to empower each other, we've got to feel that to know I've got your back, you've got to have mine, and we've got to do it with our allies to make the change that America needs. So I'm very hopeful. Definitely. And I'm very hopeful as well. I know we're like, it's been a great conversation, but we're getting short on time. So I want to ask you one more question. What's next for you um, as of kind of your career, as of kind of what you plan to do? And then also, where do you see the future of America going? Yeah. Um, well, the future is up to us. Do we stay focused? Do we stay focused? I hope we will. I think there are enough of us out there, as I said, demanding that we do so, that we're going to see real change. And it's going to be a battle. Let's be clear. I went to a webinar last night on white supremacy in the military. We've got real problems. You know that Molly, you in trouble girl? Yeah, America, we got trouble. And so we are going to have to take hard, cold looks at where we are and how we got there. So I don't know, I can't say at this moment exactly what my next steps are. I have tried to be part of solutions I have tried to pay it forward because it's so important. So many people were blessings in my life. I must pay it forward because I know that's how it works. I am a member of many posses, uh, looking to join more because I think that's how change occurs. Uh, when I read that article about no black reporters for the Golden Globes and I tweeted, I said, my God, what does it take for someone to stand up and look around and say, this doesn't look right. This doesn't look right. Not acceptable anymore. That's what we all have to do. This is not acceptable. So in some way in the next several years, I'm going to be part of that conversation. This is not acceptable. We can do better. We can do better. And we are going to do better. See, I sound like my mother in my head. Do better. <laughs> this is hilarious. And thank you once again for joining <laughs> us here today. Unfortunately, my pleasure. Have, it's been amazing. All right, thank you so much. Great questions, great conversations. Thank you for having me.